I was most curious to look at people. I noticed that right away. Um, humans just translated as way more multifaceted to me. Like when I had a f person in front of my camera, I felt like there was way more stuff to capture than a landscape or something. Um, I remember the Christmas that I got my first camera. I took a picture of my mother and that was like the beginning of the end. <laughs> Sophie Kitzman, welcome to Viewfinders. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've done over 50 episodes of the podcast. I've never had like a fashion beauty photographer on before. Um, really? It, it's not something like that really the world of fashion, like you can see me. I'm not fashionable, right? Um, so it's not <laughs> something apart from like the technical photographic side of it that would interest me. But the idea of, of like the fashion industry, it's just not something I'm, I'm really into. But when you reached out and I saw what you're doing, I was like, yes, this is interesting to me. Um, so you're working as like in the fashion and beauty photography world in New York, but coming at it from a particular angle, which I think gives us lots of talking points. So I've been really looking forward um, to getting together. Um, but bring us up to speed. What have you been shooting or what have you been up to recently this last few days? I, what have I been shooting? I just did something for Levi's um, that was really fun. Um, that was very like subculture, um, just kind of marginalized individuals um, brought into or onto the stage of fashion. Um, and I just did a political campaign that is about to come out, my first ever New York subway campaign. Cool. Um, that is for a queer trans owned brand and it wasn't necessarily a campaign for their product it was more of like a like i said political statement campaign because there's so many anti-drag and anti-trans laws being passed especially in the south of the united states right now um and because that is the community that that brand caters to they wanted to do a statement in support of the community and um i got to shoot that so i'm dying to see it on the subway which is going to be a first for me <laughs> yeah so where does that display like in the subway stations or on the trains yeah it's gonna display on top of the subway stations they have these kind of banner like um billboards there and then i think on some of the digital screens um i feel like you never really know until you see it <laughs> mm -hmm. but have you have you had campaigns in, on that scale before I've had, yes, I've done one global campaign, which actually ended up being in stores all over the world. Um, but this is the first one that's going to be on the subway in New York, which is like, you know, has a special place in my heart because most of me and my friends and everybody I know takes that subway every day. So it's like extra special. You don't have to like seek out the store to see it. It's just right there. Yeah, that's so exciting. So those are kind of moments that are exciting, aren't they? But and then there's the moment of excitement, which you should definitely experience <laughs> and cherish. But then um, <laughs> you find things kind of go back to normal after that, and yeah. <laughs> you have to deal with that. So, um, but you've had magazine covers and things like that before, right? So how yeah. do you deal? How do you deal with those kind of exciting moments? 
Um, yeah, you're right. It's definitely, um, it's almost sometimes like an emotional crash. Um, like after the really big productions, it's so, it's such a blur sometimes almost. And only recently, I think I've learned that there is always going to be a little bit of an emotional low. I think they call it, um, it's like an endorphin climax or something. I actually re started reading articles about it after my last big campaign. Um, I tried to not expect myself to go back to normal right away. Um, like typically what's hardest is like if you do one of those big shoots and you're surrounded by a big crew and it's all very exciting and your adrenaline's pumping the whole day and um, to then just be sitting in front of your laptop right away the next day. Um, now I try to maybe take myself out for a little celebration. I like to take myself out to dinner after a big production if I still have it in me the same day or if not then the next day. Um, also to kind of make the money feel real sometimes you know it's like you know that it's attached to a paycheck as well um so i like to do something that makes me feel like my labor was fruitful something that i might not do on a day-to-day -day. and then i try to have um like a rest day afterwards or even if i am working to still have um a little bit more like little moments where I still get to just lounge and celebrate what I just accomplished the day before that helps a little bit but just knowing that regardless there's going to be a little bit of an emotional low mm -hmm. because nothing not like if you're a photographer I'm sure you get it it's like nothing can kind of touch that endorphin rush <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think like the rhythm of what we do there's there's a, a build-up to it, there's an expectation and some yeah. trepidation and anxiety. I've spoken about this with other people. And um, I'm, I'm going to name drop because I kind of was talking with Joe McNally about this and he was saying that, or in his book he wrote, that he got really anxious about work and I was like, oh, I, I thought it was just me, you know. Um, but I think that natural build-up that you have towards a shoot and the shoot is this event it's going to happen, how is it going to go, that's all up in the air until you really get the camera in your hand mm, and then yeah. it's done and then kind of nothing after that. Yeah. So I think there's just that rhythm. But yeah, I think if you can, when we can get used to that and understand it, maybe we can ride those waves a little better for ourselves. Yeah, I, I get that anxiety too. That's something I had to learn to get a routine around as well. It's like, all the excitement then just turns into fear or anxiety and I would start to try to do everybody else's jobs in my head and like even have checklists about what their job was going to be on that day in my head and I had to let that go and now I try to just whenever I feel myself getting too nervous to just like trick myself into changing it into excitement in my head like mm -hmm. even if it makes me feel a little bit naive in the moment I'd rather be the little excited kid that's like, can't wait for Christmas morning. Um, because like you said, there's so many things that you can't prep for, no matter how mm -hmm. much you worry. You just need to know that you can rely on yourself in the moment. Yeah, I do that as well, because I think the anxiety, excitement, energy is very similar, if not the same. I think yeah. it's the angle that you're looking at it from, like the feeling and my body is not dissimilar, you know, if it's 
butterflies kind of thing or just being a bit kind of edgy so I, I do that thing where I, I just be I'm excited about this I'm up for this one I'm really looking forward to this um, yeah. but at the same time I think sometimes the anxiety serves me well as well it makes me very prepared you know um, so anyway I'm excited mm-hmm. and interested to talk to you about working on sets for these shoots that you do and how that works but we'll we'll get to that later I read somewhere where you said that since you were seven years old you'd strived for an alignment of head eye and heart through the tool of your craft so that made me wonder what was happening when you were seven and if you can unpack that a little bit Um, that's actually from a Henri Cartier-Bresson uh, quote. He's like the father of photography or conceptualized photography. The the alignment. I think he said to photograph is to align the head and the eye and the heart. Um, okay. I well I yeah I I started photography when I was seven. I think because I was an only child. Um, and I didn't have any siblings around to play with. I had friends around, but my day-to-day life was just me and the adults. And my dad was a lifelong hobby photographer um, as I was growing up. So whenever I would do like field, like field trips or road trips with my parents, it would just be my parents and I and my dad's camera. Um, and that was like the toy um, in mm. my eyes, that the mm. one thing that I found entertaining um, that I would st- steal from him and then feel like I had a purpose, even if I was there on my own, because there's only so much entertaining the adults can give you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I had a camera, I didn't need their attention because then mm-hmm. I had a project. Um, so that, that always served me really well. And then my dad was like, excuse me, I brought that camera so that I can use it. (laughs) So he gave me one of his old ones when I was probably nine years old. Um, And so it's been a part of my life ever since then. Like even in elementary school, I I always said I wanted to be a photographer. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what kind of cameras they were? Um... The first one, it was actually digital one. It was one of those little point and shoot, um, like power, not power shot. That's the Canon. I had that one later. Like one of those, like tiny little, almost matchbox sized. Mm-hmm. I actually still have it. It still turns on, but only for like 30 seconds. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it has like eight megapixel or something. <laughs> okay. Wow. Most of the people I talk to are, probably older than me I I think or around my age so when I'm talking to someone as young as you I'm like and your first camera was a digital camera it's crazy to me that that could yeah. be someone's first camera because yeah. we're all talking about Polaroids and some guys are talking about ancient things that I've never heard of so um, that's so funny um, so when you were a girl then and you picked up the camera I have a, a daughter who's seven and she's an only child was it curiosity what were you curious to look at how did the world look through the viewfinder at that young age i was most curious to look at people i noticed that right away um like i remember at first taking pictures of everything 
but very quickly realizing that humans just translated as way more multifaceted to me. Like when I had a person in front of my camera, I felt like there was way more stuff to capture than a landscape or something. Um, I remember the Christmas that I got my first camera, I took a picture of my mother and that was like the beginning of the end. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so from that, those early experiences, did you go on to study photography in college or anything like that or what was your path forward? Yeah, yeah, I studied photography straight out of high school. I For a long time, I thought I would go into something more academic. Um, my dad has a PhD in physics, so um, that was something I was strongly considering, but I realized that versus, or while math and physics was a, always a fun challenge to me, photography was something that was truly intuitive. Um, and when it came to like dedicating the next couple of years of my life to something, it had to be photography because I was, I knew my, I would be in it with all of my heart and my parents luckily were very supportive of me choosing what I thought would make me the happiest rather than, um, job expectations or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. and so I went to college for photography in Berlin um, and I got a bachelor's degree in photography, which was a fairly new concept in Germany. They didn't, there was not a lot of universities where you could get an actual degree in it. It was more of a craft, craftsmanship. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I'm actually very grateful that I went down that route, um, to get an academic education in conceptualized art. And, um, yeah, I think it makes me very intentional with, the way I go about my expression. Um, and part of that study was an internship, six-month internship. Um, and that's how I came to New York City for the first time. I landed an internship here um, because I was already really interested in fashion. Um, so that, that I like dipped my toe in the pond of the commercial world here for the first time. I got to be on photo sets for the first time and got to meet all of the crew and shadow the assistants and... Um, absorb as much as I could in six months and that's how I ended up here after I graduated too okay and you didn't go back you stayed in New York no I did go back um to finish college and get my degree um and apply for a work visa um and then a year later after I graduated college I came straight back and started working okay. so those six months then on the internship I feel like six months of assisting in New York, I think you're going to learn a lot. Um, yeah. I, I, was, I mean, I feel like I could learn a lot in like a couple of days, really, I mean, um, on that level of set. So what kind of, what were really the things that you took away from, from that period that you can say fall into how you work today? I think it was one of the best things I could have done. Um, I had the option of doing a study abroad or an internship, and I knew that I needed real work experience um, because there was still this, like, mystique about how the big fashion and beauty photographers were able to make a living off of their art and um, how, to, how to attract clients of that scale, like billion-dollar brands. Um, so getting to see how they did it 
was really, really useful. And um, it was, I think it was the roughest job I've ever had. Um, mm-hmm. Those six months was barely any sleep, no money. <laughs> um, but the biggest adventure of my life up until that point. And um, I think I was, I came at it with the right eagerness and the right determination because it was, ne- it wasn't easy at all, especially mm-hmm. coming into it um, as a really young female. There was only certain job positions that people expected me to slot into or to get trained for or to want to get trained for. And I had to, um, sort of put my foot down in order to get all of the experiences that I was after and be given the opportunity to even get to see certain areas of that profession, like the lighting technician side, for example, because that was a very male-dominated position on set because it's a physical job. Um, But I'm so grateful to the people that that ended up training me because after a while they were willing to give me a shot and um, let me look over their shoulder. And um, once they realized that I was in it for good and I, that I was mm-hmm. dedicated to it, then they were very generous with sharing their knowledge with me. And those are the kind of people that threw me my first couple of assisting jobs when I actually came back on a work visa, like not really knowing where my income would be coming from and starting out as like a third lighting tech assistant and just being the runner on set and doing crazy labor and um, just being grateful to get to be there was really, really useful down the road. So I was wondering then, I've never got into this with anyone before really, but when you're assisting, it's, there's you're the third assistant, so presumably there's a second and a first and you're at the bottom mm-hmm. of the pile, right? So <laughs> what's the kind of hierarchy there of the people on set who are not the photographer and how how does that work? So this is something that I also only learned when I did my internship. So there's the photographer and then the photographer's crew, which is the assistants that get hired by the photographer. And obviously that's not everybody that's on set. There's like the client side, art directors, um, production producers, production assistants, PAs, and then the whole styling team and stuff like that. And so the people that actually get hired directly from the photographer is the, his lighting crew and his digital technician, typically. So you'll have the photographer. His digital technician is who is responsible for cameras and computer gear because we're not just talking somebody that slings a cannon over their shoulder. We're talking mm-hmm. about, like, you know, phase one cameras that have these, like, very... Um, unusual operating systems they function completely different than like a regular Nikon or Canon um and then you know not just one computer with one screen but like three different screens one for one for the photographer one for the talent one for the client um so the digital technician is there to like operate all of that and operate capture one because most photographers will shoot tether they'll shoot directly into the computer so they're also there to make sure that whatever the client gets to see live already looks presentable um, and make sure that focus is good and all that stuff. And that's typically the job that, if anything, women would get pushed into because it's a little bit less physical, a little bit more like technical knowledge. Um, And then there's the lighting crew, which is like the first assistant. And then depending on the scope of the project, it's like, 
second, third, sometimes even a fourth. Um, mm-hmm. And the first assistant is usually like the photographers go to a person that they work with all the time. And they might have like two or three, depending on, because they're all freelancers. If your first choice isn't available, you'll have like your second guy that you also know you can rely on. And they have the most technical knowledge about lighting. Sometimes they'll be referred to as like lighting designers or lighting directors. And their day rate will be higher because they're not just doing the manual labor of setting stuff up and breaking it down. They're doing the work of like recreating the light that the client wants and that is in the creative brief. And some photographers are not very technical. They rely heavily on their assistants to know what gear is needed and how to set up light and how to change it based on the feedback that you're getting from the client. Other photographers will know more. Like, I'm really glad I got to do that job. Like, I worked my way up to be people's first assistant. Um, because now I hire those assistants and I know what I'm asking of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's like the first. And then the second or third will be the more like the runners and the people that just schlep stuff and set everything up and make sure that the sets are secure. Um, it's like with some of that gear, in, and you have like up to 80 people running around, you need to make sure that stuff doesn't topple over and sometimes you're running crazy high voltage um like i remember one time we were doing a production that was around 80 people and we had like cindy crawford in an aquarium tank and we were running hot lights of like thousands and thousands of watts of electricity it was nuts we had like an indoor waterfall and stuff like that Mm. like (laughs) you need to know what you're doing at that point you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you don't want to cook Cindy Crawford. No, so, <laughs> we um, tried not it's to. So, it's so interesting to me. I so we were talking about serious photo sets. Like I go out and do, I tether and I light and I do everything and yeah. I assist myself and all that. And but it's just me most of. The, I mean, sometimes I'll bring somebody in, but nothing like what you're talking about. You must have just taken. If you're eager, like you say, you've taken so much away from that experience. Yeah, it's it was some of those moments where I couldn't believe I was there. And even though sometimes you're getting exploited or your rate is so low and you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're still unbelievably mm-hmm. thankful to be there. Yeah, yeah. So how or when did you transition your shooting, presumably for yourself on the side uh, at the time when you were doing your assisting? I I read somewhere that you had one viral image that changed the path of your career. Is is that right? Or if I picked that up properly? Mm, I'm trying to remember if that image was around the same time that I stopped assisting. Um, they're, They're only roughly related to one another. I was definitely shooting the entire time like I was already publishing stuff um when I was in college and trying to um establish relationships with magazines and then establish relationships with modeling agencies here in New York City because casting is obviously really important in my work like whose stories I'm telling and I was doing smaller paid jobs as a photographer while I was still assisting Um, and I had assisted for, I think, two years, um, and I remember there was a moment where 
I had started to model as well, and I was standing in front of another photographer's camera who is very well known. known. His name is Jesse Dittmar. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I think you would really like his work too. Um, he does a lot of celebrity portraits and stuff, and I really admired him in his work, and he kind of came out of the same industry and like assistance to photographer pipeline and I was telling him that I was still assisting and digiteching and that I was a photographer and he had seen my work and he said the way that people talk about you in one or two sentences is is where your career goes because everything is word to mouth here um, and you working as an assistant you get referred as an assistant to other photographers and you're somebody's go-to as an assistant and people know how to utilize you in that job position but it's not necessarily in their personal interest to push you up the career ladder to the next step of what you want to do and so you can't be oh I know this assistant that's also a great photographer or Mm -hmm. I know this assistant that's you can be somebody that like, oh, I know this model who's also a photographer because they're both key role positions on set. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, it's not just the photographers that hire you as assistants. It's all of those other 80 people on set that meet you as the assistant rather than the photographer. So mm-hmm. it's a rough jump to make, like saying, I will no longer assist. I am no longer available for this job position is really scary because that's where you're bread and butter comes from and your Mm -hmm. go-to people if you tell them I quit they'll find somebody else like that you know and those referrals will start going to other people and I recognize that but there was a lot of assistants or a handful of assistants that would tell me you have to assist for at least five to ten years you have to be somebody's first assistant for three years before anybody will take you serious in the industry and Oftentimes that advice would come from what we call lifers, like assistants that have been assisting for 10 years plus and Mm -hmm. they used to have this dream of being a photographer, but now they're so exhausted from that type of work that they're creatively burned out already and I didn't want that to happen to me. Um, And so I decided that I had given assisting my all, I had worked my way up that ladder I felt like I had paid my dues, but especially taken as much knowledge as I think was in it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've been really dedicated to those job positions. I think I was doing a good job, but it wasn't the end goal. So I needed to move, pa- push past it. Um, and that was a scary decision to tell the people that would week in, week out, throw me jobs that... I wasn't going to do it anymore and then Mm. force myself to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think you have to make that space available and other things will fill that. Yeah. So was there a break then as a photographer? Was there one sort of shoot or moment that you felt like, okay, this is it. I'm I'm off and running now. Um, There was a couple of moments. I think it's always like, it's not quite as linear. There's a lot of moments where you feel like I've made it or this is going to make my career um Mm -hmm. and then you take three steps back and then you like (laughs) keep going you know but there was one moment the first commercial shoot I ever did for a big name company um was a hair care brand that is really well known 
and they I had gotten referred to that client via the retoucher that I was working with because she was retouching the campaigns that they were running and they wanted a new photographer for that campaign and I got hired for that you know I didn't have an agent nothing like I hired the assistants that I had been assisting with alongside I hired all the people that I had once been trained under to now all of a sudden work for me and I threw the studio manager from one of my old bosses a couple hundred bucks to help me figure out the contract negotiations and the licensing and everything that I was doing for the first time I just kind of had I had to figure it out like I had to call her and be like do I ask for 20,000 or 50,000 like I didn't even know you know like that mm -hmm. kind of scale um, yeah. and I remember we shot it at Milk Studios, which is a really famous um, chain of studios here in New York City. Like most big commercial productions in fashion and beauty um, get shot at Milk Studios. And I walked in with my, and I had been there like countless times as an assistant. Like I knew them like the back of my hand. And this was my first time that I got to book one of the studios, you know, and the studios are thousands of dollars a day. And I walked in with my assistant and the girl at the reception said, oh, like, I can't let you into Studio 10 yet because the photographer isn't here yet and hasn't clocked in yet because the photographer needs to open the studio and then the clock right. starts running on that space. And my assistant goes, oh, they are the photographer. Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, oh, my God, it's we love your work. It's so good to put a face to the name because they had looked me up to see, like, mm -hmm who's the new kid on the block. And then we did that job and it was so surreal, like seeing my name on all of the catering boxes. And like, I st that still gives me a thrill, seeing like the rental gear from the rental houses with my little, the little stickers of my name on it, like nothing compares. <laughs> like, um, and then within 24 hours of doing that job, I got a phone call from a producer in Minneapolis um, that had, is was running a he was working with the product with the marketing company that had gotten hired by a billion dollar beauty care brand that was doing a shoot for their new product line that they were releasing and they were doing a rebrand of the brand at the mm -hmm. same time and it was a global campaign and they had asked him to get in contact with me to inquire about my rates and so i'm on the phone with him less than 24 hours after having done my first ever shoot under my name at Milk Studios. And he goes, we know you shoot at Milk a lot, but is there any other studios you like in New York City? And he was in Minneapolis. Like, <laughs> How do you think that happened? <laughs> I think, I, I can only speculate. I think when you rent a space at a studio like that, they look you up. They check out who's the new kid on the block who is starting to do these these the jobs at this scale. Um, obviously, like the photographer, it, oftentimes the photographers choose the space that they work in um, because our expect expertise is more like it. It's more asked for than the client that's necessarily hiring because we, we need the stage that we need in order to produce what they're asking of us. Um, so I think you get on people's radar 
because mm-hmm. like I said, like that's those kind of studios, they're not like 250 bucks. They're like $8,000, the smaller ones a day. So you're, yeah. you, you yourself become a big client. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think over the last couple of years, I've learned that in the industry, there's um, certain people that try to have you on their radar. Like there's such a thing called art buyers that get hired by these big brands to know which artists are working at what level, like what their training is, who they've been trained by, um, who they've worked with. And you kind of get watched. Um, it sounds so like, (laughs) it sounds so like aloof. Um, but I've been told this by some agents that I've worked with that that's kind of how that works. And they, they just start to take notice of you. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that's kind of how that happens. I always wonder with commercial photographers on, on their process. So the, the phone rings, they want you to do the thing what happens then like what's the process if it's like say that brand for example it's a billion Mm -hmm. dollar cosmetics or whatever you're working with their agency their art director their advertising company what's your place in that is it do you have creative input or are you just joining the dots kind of thing from what they've pre-visualized or how does it go forward from there I love that question um, because I, I feel like if more people got more insight into how that works, then they wouldn't shy away from going after wanting that um, mm-hmm. because I know I was really intimidated by that um, and um, understanding how that works makes it less scary because I'm also just a solo artist over here. You know, I just hire yeah. people every once in a while to be a team. Um It really depends on the client. Most of the time you get presented with a creative deck that either the client has put together or like at that scale, it's not even the client. It's like the marketing company that is working for the client. So with this job, it was crazy because I always had at least two middlemen between me and the client at all times. Mm -hmm. And then it was, it was even, they were working for the U.S. like branch of the brand. But because it was a global campaign, it would have to get signed off on internationally as well. So that whole mm-hmm. process takes extremely long. Mm-hmm. Um, with with that global campaign, that was, I'd say, two or three months at least of pre-production. Wow. Um, so at first, you'll have a call. I had a call with the producer like I said, then there was a call with the mark, some of the people from the marketing company where I got presented with the creative deck and they had used some of my photos from my portfolio in their creative deck, which I took as a good sign. Cause mm-hmm. at that point, sometimes you're not the only photographer in the running for the job too. It's typically two or three photographers that are being presented to the client. So you get create, you get presented with the concept and then, I think I created a creative deck as a reply to their concept. So you're basically exchanging mood boards and Mm -hmm. visual concepts to see if you're on the same page. 
Um, and then I probably had another call with them to gauge the scope of the project. So I needed to ask things like, where are we producing this? Like, in this case, it was a beauty department that was sh shooting the beauty stills. There was a videographer and a stills life photographer. So there was three creatives getting hired and I was in the running for the beauty stills. And because it was a product campaign, the beauty images were going to be the forerunner of the whole campaign. So the videographer and the still life photographer were then told to follow my creative lead so that everything was cohesive, which was also interesting because they were both a lot older than I was. Um, not that age matters in that field, but um, I definitely got to feel that to a certain degree too. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I had a call where I would ask things like, you know, can we get a pre-light day? Um, like, is there a day where we have time to set up or are we doing all of this in one day? Um, I had to ask, you know, the usage of the images, where are the images going to be used? Um, is it consumer print advertisement? Are, are we doing prints off of the images? Because I was also trying to gauge what kind of equipment I would need, like lighting wise, but also camera wise, because with a lot of beauty photography, if we're shooting organic material like skin, and in this case, it was skincare. So it was a lot about the sheen on the skin and the complexion. And it was um, a diversity focused campaign. So people with different ethnic backgrounds and from different races, so I knew that I wanted to shoot a face one because the color range is more accurate to organic materials, meaning like skin or if you're shooting flowers or something like that. Um, so I needed to ask all of those questions to know like, well, how expensive is this going to get for me? Do I need two assistants? Do I need three assistants? Do I need to hire a Digitech because I'm working a camera that I... I've only operated like once in my life before. Mm -hmm. um, then there was a lot of talk. It, originally, we were going to shoot it in New York City, but then the pandemic hit and New York City became one of those like hot spots and mm -hmm. it got pushed back. And that's how we ended up doing it in Minneapolis as well. Um, so then after that call, I wrote an estimate um, breaking down what I would charge for it. Also, you know, I had to write an estimate to sell the usage rights for the images. So I needed to know how many images, how, like, am I handling post-production or is the client paying for post-production? Um, how long is the timing going to be, which was tricky because the release nationwide was at a different time point than the global release. And it's difficult to sell somebody a one-year usage right when you don't know how long your images are actually hanging in the store in New Delhi, you're not going to go over there and check, you know? So yeah. that was a whole new monster for me. And then you write them an estimate and then you start negotiations on the rate, um, which was also something that I had to pick up very quickly and like learn how to do and um, do it in a sense that I knew I could go into it very clear about my own worth and why are they hiring me you know what do i bring to the table and how does that justify the sum that i'm asking for because at that point it's not like oh the camera costs this and this much this is what i'm asking you're also asking your artist's worth right 
mm-hmm. because if they want you rather than somebody else, you're associating yourself with that brand, but the brand is also associating themselves with you. And I figured that they were coming to me, a fairly fresh artist on the scene. Yes, maybe because my rates aren't quite as up there as somebody that has been in it for 20, 30 years. But I also bring a new perspective on it. And I knew that this brand was doing a rebrand. They were trying to look or, you know, their approach was to appear relevant and to show their relevancy and their understanding of social context and what consumers are asking for these days, which is representation, diverse representation. Mm -hmm. And that's what I specialize in. So you need to go into those negotiations knowing that that is part of your asking point because you know mm-hmm. that that's the worth you bring to the table. So lo- a very quick learning curve there for me um, under mm-hmm. a lot of pressure. Um, but the best way is through, right? <laughs> um, and that being followed with so many more creative calls with the other creatives on it. And it's a lot of work leading up to the mm-hmm. big day. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of pressure that could build up on you how do you find that when you get there and you get the camera in hand do you just go into being you again or like are you okay when you're shooting yeah it's crazy because the diff the hardest moments of it are well at that point because i hadn't done it as much either it was the nerves leading up to it like do Mm. not mess this up yeah. But as soon as you hold the camera in your hand, you realize that you know what you're doing. You realize yeah. that that's what you're there for. That's that is the actual moment that you get hired for. All the other stuff you learn, you adapt, you you know, you learn to deal with the nerves and you know what to expect more after having done it a couple of times, but as scary as it is, the moment where you just pick up the camera and you have the person in front of you, no more nerves and no more self-doubt either because as soon as you put a camera in my hand I know what I'm doing and I know that I'm good at it (laughs) yeah okay I can relate to that and you've got people (laughs) on set who are looking at the monitors saying yeah that's fine that's fine yeah I got to bring my first assistant with me from New York City which was a huge support for me because with him I knew that no matter what went wrong and a lot of things went wrong Um, he could handle it you know that's why he's very well paid too like we had to replace the whole computer system that we had rented because it wasn't able to process the phase one fast enough and stuff like that and he managed to pull that off without me barely even noticing that that's what he was doing like I didn't even notice he had a guy come in and swap out the whole system because I was so preoccupied with catering to the client a huge set three sets running parallel and having an international client. So we had a time difference. The clients that we were having sign off on our pre-light, they were in London. So we only had the first half of the day to get things exactly where they should be because then they would go to bed and we would actually shoot, like actually do the real shooting part of it, you know? And that was all new to me. But once you're in it, you just kind of, squeeze your eyes shut and just get it done and then afterwards you if you were to go back you you'd probably do things differently but in the moment yeah. you give it your all 
Yeah, and that's good, and you can learn, and then you do it better, I guess, next yeah. time. I could go on and on. <laughs> I, I'm so interested, like I said, on this side of, of of the of the work. Yeah, I don't get to talk about this nearly enough. Um, we no, we don't, do we? Because our partners or our kids or our friends don't care about cameras yeah. and stuff. So, well, I actually, um, I just last year I started a coaching business where I do group coachings too for photographers that want to shoot commercial stuff because I recognize that. I was really privileged to be able to do the six month internship and then shadow all of these, um, photographers. I wouldn't know how to run jobs like this if I wouldn't have done that, but I know that not everybody gets to do that. And there's this like coveredness to this kind of knowledge, mm -hmm. which I think if more people like you asked about it and talked about it, um, then it would become more accessible to the photographers that actually dream of doing this kind of work. Yeah, and I wanted to give you a chance to plug your coaching. I watched the trailer and the curriculum on your website. It looked really interesting to me. So why don't you um, talk about that for a minute? What's that coaching about and who would it be a good fit for? Well, the best fit is for photographers that aim to make a living off of their photography, whether they already are or they're starting to. Um, and they are at a part in their career where they know that making a very dedicated decision to not just do it on their own any longer seems like the best fit because I also reached a part in my career where I knew just doing it on my own and doing it on the side wasn't enough anymore. I needed people to coach me through it. I needed other people to assist me with their knowledge. Um, and I needed outside input on regardless of where you're standing in your career. So that was kind of the original idea. And the idea was also that um, I came into it having to fight really, really hard to be given a lot of the knowledge that I acquired. I had to really mm -hmm. prove myself before I was let into this world, the mm -hmm. assistant world and like getting to see all of the accountant side of it and the administrative side of what it means to run these really big, successful photography businesses. And I think it's the one thing that us artists don't get taught. Like, I went to college. I never heard a single minute of this kind of information. And had I not assisted, I wouldn't have had access to it. And I know a lot of artists shy away from the word business like that, you know, when they hear it, because all we want to do is have our creative expression and like tell the story with what we're doing. But the business side is the foundation to it. And, you know, it's also an emotional kind of preparation that is necessary to be able to go after these big brands and show up and make yourself visible and knock on people's doors and say, hey, I'm capable of this. I just need to be given a chance. And a lot of people don't even know where to start with that. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what the what the idea was there. And I do that in one-on-one -on -one with photographers where I am their actual mentor and I coach them through exactly based on where they are. And then I like to do it in a group setting too because I know a lot of people have similar questions like, well, what do I do when I actually do land a brand or how do I reach, how do I reach these brands? How do I get them to notice me? But then once I do, what do I do? How do I write an estimate? But also how do I show up 
and ask for what I actually need to be paid in order to have the resources to create the best art that I can create. Some mm-hmm. of the art that I create, I can't do it on a no budget thing. And I also can't do it without a crew. But that takes a certain level of confidence and self understanding of your skill and everything else you can learn mm-hmm. by, for example, doing one of my classes or taking a coaching with me. Yeah, it sounds really, really good. Um, I think people, they'll know if it's the right thing for them if they're listening. Yes. I'll put a link in the show notes. They can go check oh, it out. And, and I think <laughs> the price point sounds like great value. And from the snapshot of you that I've experienced just now, I think you're going to be a great coach. So I hope people check that out. I wanted, you mentioned this before, I thought this was going to be the first part of our conversation and the (laughs) photography bit would come later, but I really was interested to talk to you about representation and that side of your work. And I wanted to, I don't know if, if there's a point to this or not, but I wanted to frame my perspective on this before we yes, go into please. it because I'm, I'm here i am a white middle-aged guy from a western country <laughs> i'm represented okay so um, <laughs> i grew up knowing that people like me can walk on the moon and do anything they want basically but oh, um, well said <laughs> i know right so i've got no problems but um i'm married to a black african woman we met when we were like 20 21 i'm, I'm 44 now so I've spent my whole adult life around underrepresented people who do have doors closed in their face because of perceptions um, of their value based on how they look, where they come from, or their accent. And I have a daughter who's growing up with brown skin in this world. So I'm invested. I'm really invested in this topic. And so I have some... I feel like I have some insight into that because of the context that I've just described, but I'm still a white British guy and so I feel like I'm here to learn. So here's a quote um, which I read somewhere maybe on your website. I uplift people from marginalised communities and underrepresented individuals. With my photography, I bridge the gap of visually underrepresented diversity and give individuals access to the commercial beauty and fashion world. So, yeah, I I obviously I want you to talk more about that, about the value of representation, but also the fashion and beauty world seems like it's built on, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, if you look a certain way, if your skin is smooth, if you wear certain clothes, then you may have more value. And, and if you don't look like that, you could feel like you have less value. So it seems to me that the the way that you're taking underrepresented people to the heart of that fashion and beauty world, that's going to be some kind of clash or some kind of tension or some kind of friction. So I'm interested in all of that. So from from that setup, I don't know if there's anything <laughs> you can say about about that aspect of your work. Well, maybe I'll start with how I got there because um that was that wasn't always like the the concrete plan when I was starting photography. It's where I naturally gravitated a little bit later on. Um, I came to the United States at 22, or I actually permanently moved here at 22, 
And uh, shortly after moving here, I realized that I was gay and I came out as a lesbian woman and I now identify as non-binary. And prior to that, I had lived in straight relationships for many, many years. And I was basically raised to be straight and to present in a certain type of way based on my gender as well. And I was confronted with that really heavily when I moved here too in the industry when I was doing an internship, like I said, in a very male-dominated field. Um, And a little bit later into that process, like on a personal level, did I realize that representation had everything to do with that because I was consuming so much from this industry that I now had gotten my foot in the door with and yet all I was seeing was people that I I definitely wouldn't have recognized myself in Mm -hmm. and if I was feeling that way then you know people that are even more marginalized than I am or just as marginalized as I am people from my community people with disabilities people with different body shapes people from different races, um, different ages, like ageism is such a big thing in the industry as well, then they feel like that too. And I felt like I had acquired this tool belt to express myself with, which was photography. And I had entered into this industry that had always fascinated me that, you know, was dictating what we saw as worthy because what we look at we perceive as um more more dominant and more worthy to be looked at right Mm -hmm. um so i realized that those were the people that i needed to see it started out as a very personal thing it was like Mm -hmm. these are the people that i need to see in front of my camera and i started photographing these people and I think it was just around the time that the industry started shifting at the same time where consumers don't want to look at advertisement campaigns anymore that feel completely unattainable Mm. when it comes to beauty standards or body shapes or whatever it is that we're being shown, right? Because it doesn't make us feel good. But for a long time, it sold products because it's saying, if you only buy this product, then you you get a little bit closer to being like this person that we are telling you is worthy to be looked at. Yeah. And now consumers, they're tired of that. They want to see somebody that has the same cellulite that they do or that has the same body shape that they do or that has the same disability that they do because it makes us feel seen. And I know that I work in a commercial industry um, I don't deny that, but knowing that I can be that bridge to let people that have been actively kept out of that representation for way too long and be that person that not only brings them in, but also understands how important it is to protect their integrity and their identity Um, I know I can be the person for that because I have a personal motivation there. I know what it takes away from somebody to be not given the space to be who they are or to grow up with the indirect communication that 
who you are is not worthy, it's not good enough, or that you need to change yourself in order to fit in or be accepted. And because I have that background, I know how to create that space for people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that I got to observe in the industry, in an older generation of this industry, they don't have that comprehension. And they didn't have to cater to that yet because the industry gave them power and the way that they established themselves served them. And I got to see that and I got to feel that firsthand because I was discriminated against as well when I first showed up, you know, and um, it was a very sexist environment. And I realized, like, this is such an amazing world fashion to me is my one of my favorite art forms of cultural and historic references and zeitgeist and all of that stuff but now it's time to utilize that in a greater good as well in a sense that you know I think about would have helped me as I was growing up like if those were the kind of pictures I would have had hanging on my bedroom wall as a kid my life might have looked a little bit different you know starting out um and that's kind of how I just like ended up in this niche where now all of a sudden I was marketable, which felt weird too. You know, now brands come to me because they want me to do that for them. And that's some very interesting conversations because some of them genuinely want to do better and they want to diversify behind the camera as well. They want to diversify their crew. They want to let new voices in. Um, and there's a lot of performance to it as well and a lot of tokenistic approaches where it's more about how you appear to be doing good. Mm-hmm. And the difference there is sometimes a fine line to walk, you know, but that makes it feel purposeful behind the scenes for me too, because then I get to go into these rooms and see what's actually there and what what I can bring to the table mm-hmm. beyond just photographing a diverse group of people, right? Or being the queer photographer on set. Yeah, I think uh, you've said so much there. I was, so I was thinking while you were talking, you know, we can understand that some of these you know, big corporations that we're talking about want to be seen to move towards um, the diversity um, and representing different kinds of people in their campaigns. But we can understand that that is also for commercial interest on their side. But yes. you being there brings, uh, uh, like you say, uh, you're the link and you bring that authenticity to to the scene, whether it's really intended or, or not, um, I guess. So I, I was talking with uh, Chris Orwig a while ago. He's a photographer, a great portrait photographer. We were talking about authenticity. And um, I think maybe that's really what you're on to. Your, your work is very aligned with who you are, right? I like to think it is, yes, because the people that I get to work with, I recognize a similar path to mine in a sense that a lot of those individuals have made experiences where they had to abandon part of who they are at their core in order to feel like they could belong. and sometimes their stories are vastly different from mine you know i don't know what it's like to be disabled i don't know what it's like to be black i don't know what it's like to be transgender but at the root of it i think we've all made 
experiences that can compare to one another and that give me solidarity with the people that I am trying to uplift. Um, and that gives me purpose that is bigger than myself. And it gives me purpose beyond just the sake of the art, you know. When this is done well, what comes out of that? What kind of impact does it have on a person or a group of people when they suddenly they do see themselves represented on a, on a magazine or in a subway station or, or wherever? What kind of impact does that really have on you or other people in the communities that you represent? Well, I think first and foremost, it gives us material for self-recognition. Like when I trace this back in my own story, how... If Had I been presented with a much larger variety of representation, I would have had more material to, to recognize myself within that. And it's very complex to describe what a life feels like that you are living separated from part of who you are, you know? And that affects everything that affects how much space you take up how you utilize your voice what you go after and i think how you are being embraced by society at large is secondary to that you know we're not just trying to put diverse individuals on a billboard so that other people can have more understanding for people that are different from them we're also trying to do it for the people that it's meant to represent because that's where it starts is that we find self-value and capacity for self-love by having access to the different facets that who we are, you know? Like, I completely changed how I was living at 22 when I finally had people around me that showed me a different alternative to who I could be and how I could live my life and who I was allowed to love and how much space I'm allowed to take up and also the conditioning that I was allowed to no longer cater to that as a little kid I didn't question once because all I wanted was to belong and to feel like I was lovable but if we only ever show one version of what is acceptable in order to receive that then we can't be full-rounded humans. Let's talk about camera gear. You probably use different gear for different jobs, but is there a camera and just a sweet lens that you love to use? Um, well, personally, I use a 5D Mark IV. And I have a 2405 which might surprise some people I know everybody is expecting me to say 2470 um, but I like a one shot deal if it's just me um, or it's on my personal productions mm -hmm. um, I have to admit I'm, I don't consider myself <clears throat> to be the most technical photographer like I don't consider myself a tech nerd um, I don't get off on technical details mm -hmm. um, but I think I have mastered my craft to a very high degree um, like by assisting other people and by 
having it be my job too as a mm-hmm. digital tech. Like it's not like I don't have the knowledge, but it's means to an end for me. Um, yeah. And I like to learn to operate it to the extent that I need it to achieve exactly what's in my head and what my expectations are. But I don't really ever go further than that. From what we spoke about before, I was thinking, well, you're very technical. And maybe what you're saying is how I feel about it myself. Uh, I'm as technical as I need to be. Like, I know the stuff I need to know. I I was looking at stuff today about bit depth and things and I'm like I'm just not even like I can't you know I don't need to know yeah <laughs> same so, um so I'm I'm not there but so when you're working in a studio on these campaigns you're hiring in all the lighting and whatnot do you have like preferred kit that you like to use or a way that you like to shoot I yes I hire individuals to help me but I think I think I am uh, at a fair degree of knowledge from having done the jobs myself, A, when it comes to lighting and also when it comes to the gear. Um, I know how, like, I have done their jobs, so I know what I'm asking of them. Mm -hmm. It's, for me, it's more that I know I am allowed to just focus on the task that I was hired to do in the moment when it comes down to it. Um, and having other people take care of the other things for me. And um, that took a little bit of practice too, because in the beginning I was trying to do everybody's job at the same time. Like when we did that big global campaign, like we had a pre-light day, and like I said, it was months and months of the making. And then as we wrapped the actual shoot day, I was so happy and I jumped up and I started grabbing sandbags and lugging them back and like helping my crew break down. And my first assistant came over to me and he pulled me aside and he said, Sophie, you're starting to freak people out because they think that you're so impatient and that they, you think that they're working too slow for your liking, that you're now lugging sandbags. You need to go sit down and pretend like you're doing work on your laptop. And I was like, that's so <laughs> silly. I have two arms and two legs. Let me help you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, sorry, I got a little bit away from your original question. No, it's fine. <laughs> so... Is there, what's your place in setting the tone on the set? Like, are you, it might depend on the campaign, but if, I mean, are you the boss on the set or when there are art directors and big clients, are they kind of the boss or who kind of, I I think like you're the most powerful person in the room when you're photographing someone. Um, Because not that I'm into having power over people, but just to be aware of the dynamic but how do you set the tone on a set is that something that you're conscious of doing um I'm conscious of being the team leader when it comes to my own crew um and I'd like to think that I'm a very good communicator because I know what what level of communication helps people do their job because I've done that job and I've worked for photographers that were really bad at leading teams too Mm -hmm. um and I know how to make people feel taken care of and appreciated as well because I've seen that um, neglected so much and the little the little guys, quote-unquote, the little mm-hmm. guys, the assistants, take fault and take blame for things that um, other people that are ranked higher in importance on set, they 
need to make themselves look good, that kind of thing. It's yeah. very interesting, very ego-driven environment oftentimes. Um, and then when it comes to clients, I think of it as a collaboration. I like to hope that when I do a job with a client once, that that's the beginning of a relationship. And I always ask myself, like, am I talking to a stranger? Like, even as I'm starting with just email exchanges, there's individuals on the other side. There's not a billion-dollar client sitting on my set. There's Monica, who is the art director that got hired by this brand, and Monica's and I's job is to find the common denominator where we're all happy and have the, the best set up in order to do what we do best. And that comes along with compromises too. Like, yeah, I'm there to cater to the client's wishes, um, but I'm not a service provider. I'm an artist and I'd like to hope that I get hired because of that mm -hmm. um, and that my expertise are wanted yeah that's awesome i'm smiling at the way <laughs> you said i'm not a service provider should i put, turn that into a bumper sticker <laughs> that could be the hand title. it out to my coaching students <laughs> that's the title of the episode um so um okay that's cool that's cool okay let's move along this is a round called double exposure okay i'm going to ask you about a photograph of yours that i'm interested in and then I'll bounce it back to you to tell me about one of your favorite photographs and the story behind it. So I always pick out a few because you never know how it's going to go. But I, I wanted to ask you about this shoot or other work that you've done with, is it Jaysa Gary? Um, so this is a really beautiful lady. Um, I want to get you to describe the photographs and talk about what it was like to work with Jaysa. Jayza has become a really close friend of mine over the last couple of years because we've actually gotten to work with one another quite a bit. Um, but the first time I photographed Jayza was through a modeling agency that I have a good relationship with here in New York City. They have a very diverse cast of models and Jayza has um, a super unique story. She has a really, really rare skin condition called lamella ethiosis, where her skin sheds and renews itself constantly. And so her look for everybody that's just listening doesn't have a visual reference. It's like, it's almost like scaly kind of this pattern of cracks in her skin and it's all over her body and her face. Um, and it's quite beautiful, actually. You know, it almost looks like marble sometimes, um, but it's very unusual, and most mm -hmm. people have never seen anybody with Jayza, especially as she was growing up. I think now the community with people with her condition, like they're being represented a little bit more. But she had a dream of being a model, but there had never been a model in the industry with her skin condition. Right. Um, so she basically paved her own path and um i photographed her she lives in charlotte north carolina and she came into town to do some test shoots and i think i was the first out of two test shoots that she had ever done um so i was one of the first photographers to ever work with her and i took a picture of her that went viral on the internet and kind of kick-started her career okay. she 
was kind of trying, she was giving modeling a shot for the first time and she was looking for work and she had applied for a job at her local Target and they actually turned her down. And because that image went viral, she landed one of her first big commercial campaigns as a model, which happened to be for Target, which is so ironic. You know, the universe works in funny ways sometimes. Um, And then a little bit later, I got to photograph her for the cover of Glamour UK. And I've since then photographed her a couple more times. But it was so gratifying to see how she just went for it. And she said, somebody like, like you guys need somebody like me like this is missing and i'll i'll be brave enough to be that the first person that walks into rooms that might not even have created space for her yet mm-hmm. and and you know pinpoint people towards that that was missing yeah it, so which i got the sense that you'd worked with her a few times um so which was the image that went viral the image that went viral is the one where she has her knees pulled up and she has her head like laid on her knees and I think she has some beads in her um, braids. Okay, yeah, because I'm, I'm looking, they're too similar, but I think they were taken at different times maybe. So yeah. the one with, yeah, okay. She, she really looks incredible. I mean, it must be um, like really difficult, obviously. It looks painful probably to have the condition that mm-hmm. she has but um when she smiles i saw the video that uh, a video on youtube with uh, her, her being photographed by you and um yeah she just looked incredible so that was yeah. that's fantastic i want to throw it back to you is there one super memorable memorable or a picture that you're really fond of that's got a great story that goes with it the image that really changed my career um was an image i took a couple years ago there's so many but that one has a really fun story to tell is an image of a mom that has vitiligo Mm -hmm. um that is breastfeeding her child um the story was she was also signed to that agency that jayza assigned to and she was coming to my studio to be photographed by me and as she was on her way to the studio, she called me and she asked if she could bring her child because she's a single mom. Um, and I said, yes, of course. And I was kind of secretly hoping that it would be a baby. She didn't even say on the phone. Yeah. Um, but I think motherhood is such a visually interesting subject as well. Mm-hmm. And she brought Io, who was her child, who at the time she was raising as non-binary. So using they, them pronouns for Ayo. Um, and we really took our time with it. And I asked her as she read, I was like, have you guys been photographed together? And she said, not as much as we would like to. And Ayo uh, was exactly one year old. And you know, that time flies so fast with, mm. with, with tiny little babies. And so I asked if I could photograph them together. And we were playing with Ayo on the studio floor, me and my assistants. And I had this... Uh, wicker basket chair that I put her in and I asked if it was okay to do a little bit of skin on skin because I didn't want the clothes that they were wearing to be in the forefront of this image Mm -hmm. I also wanted to showcase her skin condition Um, and then Ayo we took Ayo's shirt off and I was wearing like neon turquoise diapers which was not quite (laughs) the color scheme I was looking I was going for you know I I like to highlight people's complexions and when it's about skin, then I don't 
like to have that much other contrast in the images. So we wrapped her cardigan around Ayo and Ayo was sitting on her lap and was pulling down her shirt because um, they were hungry and she asked if it was all right that she breastfed. Um, and she's also a birth doula, ironically, because this image ended up being like on every single platform about motherhood and and nursing and everything. Um, and I photographed them and I captured an image where Io is latched on and looking into my camera at the same time. And it was one of those images that I knew was like when I was going through it, I saw that image and I was like, this is it. Mm -hmm. And I only ever published one image from that shoot. I published one close-up beauty shot of her and the image of her and Io because I knew that that image was so out of the ordinary that I didn't even, like none other image would ever compare. Mm -hmm. And that image went more viral than any image I've ever published up until this point in my career. Millions and millions of people saw that image. It got reposted by platforms that had millions of followers. It was in the print issue of Vogue Italia. It was in exhibitions in Paris. It was in the um, Book of American Photography uh, two years ago, I believe. Um, it was absolutely insane. And one of the most gratifying things of that was that that was one of the very first times that one of my images reached the widest variety of audience, which was so interesting for me to see it not just be received within the art bubble and like, you know, the, the people that live in a similar cultural setting as I do, but that come from completely different areas of the world. Mm -hmm. And to see that based on your own background, you can look at the same image and see something completely different and have a completely different reaction to it, which you know, this was the first time that I received hate, genuine hate on the internet. Um, but it was almost like, you know, they say like when you have haters, you have, you made it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it was like one of those like images that just like shook people in their core beliefs, which was fascinating. I mean, like what more could you ask for as an artist? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Like the comments on anything <laughs> on the internet are always insane, but I'm like, what kind of objection were people having to that? I mean, all across the board, f starting from people that had never seen somebody with vitiligo and having a certain reaction to that, um, to you know, the sanctity of a mother breastfeeding their child and that being published, public, you know. Um, where it was never the intent to capture that image and it was captured under consent and published under consent, but people feeling like the sanctity of that bond of a mother and their child was kind of, um, infiltrated upon or intruded upon by, by myself. Or also, you know, the shock factor of the nudity of it, even though, you know, women, mothers feeding in public, that is, they get, they have to deal with so much criticism for that as well, even though it's a life-giving, natural process, like, you know, so that there's a lot of social controversy around that. 
Um, and then Io, you know, the story that accompanied the image obviously was Io being raised, um, with gender neutral pronouns, which was a whole other Pandora's box that we opened there. And, you know, the discussion of should we raise children into binary gender boxes, um, that, you know, our, at least my generation now is, is growing up being very aware of that. Not everybody, um, identifies with or sees themselves within and um, little children that don't even understand those social constructs yet being um, objectified to that and um, yeah I think mothers in general get so much controversy about the way that they bring children into the world and the next generation that we're raising so that image was more than a thousand words or a million words you know <laughs> yeah yeah I just, when I see that, I think, well, that's interesting. I don't see that every day. Um, and I think we all have things that we're dealing with, mostly internally for most people, I, I guess. But when you have something, I'm just talking about this, the vitiligo, that's so external and so public, that just takes a lot of courage to have to deal with the kind of feedback I can imagine that she she must have to deal with even yeah. from just being looked at in the street and things like that so I just see a lot of courage there and, and I don't know what that is like but I know that with Jesus similar as with Jesse I now get a lot of other people that have the same skin conditions that contact me because they've always had the dream of being a model or of being photographed. And I think that counts for something is that people are starting to stand up and say, hey, me, me too. Like, look, look, me, I look like that. Yeah, yeah. But the, the baby is like, they're so satisfied when they're feeding. And <laughs> the baby is just <laughs> like, yeah, this is mine. And, you know, so, <laughs> so um, that's so funny. Um, okay, thanks, Sophie. Have you got one or two more minutes? Yes, yes. This is what I call the quick fire round. I call it motor drive. This is a term that goes back to film cameras, <laughs> which obviously you're completely unaware of. So um, it's fine. I like film cameras too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, some quick fire questions: uh, wide angle or telephoto? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <Stick to soon. laughs> okay that's an answer uh color or black and white color expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt corner of my shirt what's a weird thing i can find in your camera bag or your camera kit tampons <laughs> <laughs> okay i don't think that's weird um no it's not <laughs> is, is it for cleaning the lens no anyway um <laughs> Okay, name a photographer we should all know about. Who's doing some really good work that you look up to? Oh, put me on the spot. Um, Petra Collins. I just, I'm such a sucker for her stuff. Patrick Collins? Petra Collins. Petra, yeah, she does, okay, okay. Yeah, she does music videos too. It's just fun to look at. Cool, okay, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, what's your go-to emoji? Um, right now, the hands that form a heart. <laughs> okay, cool. I like it. Um, what's the best thing to do in Brooklyn? Um, besides visit me, um, go to the farmer's market um, 
at McCarran Park and then stroll through Williamsburg and go to the waterfront. Okay, cool. I I did a memorable shoot in Brooklyn one time, and um, I was we were in New York for a few days. My cousin lived there. She set me up with some ballerinas. So you've got ballerinas here. You've got the nice. Manhattan skyline over there. Sort of sun, not sunset blue yeah. hour kind of thing above. And amazing. Millions of people going around. It was insane. Um, yeah. So that was my big memory of Brooklyn. And we went to eat somewhere. So um, what do you call I was talking to this guy, right? I come from a town called Aberdeen. And you, someone who comes from here is called an Aberdonian. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I was talking to this guy who is in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was saying, so are people from your town called Little Rockers or what? And so what do you call someone who comes from Brooklyn? I don't know because I always say I'm a Berliner. <laughs> You're a Ber- <laughs> Cool. Okay. Maybe it's a Brooklyner. We'll find out one day. If there was only a way we could find out. Okay. Last question. When do you feel at peace with the universe? When I'm holding a camera. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you so much. This could have been a much... It was a long episode, but it could have been much, much, much longer. Really enjoyed meeting you, and I think you're doing a great job. Please keep it up. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking so much time, and um, yeah, thank you for letting me come on. 